This is Guns and Butter. What is important is that all these bills appearing in all states are modeled after each other. They appeared as if all at once following the Disneyland outbreak. That means they had been worked on, pre-drafted, and were merely waiting for an outbreak that could be classified by federal health officials as an epidemic. So this was an organized effort to get mandated vaccines so you couldn't have an exemption. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Dr. Gary Null. Today's show, Vaccines, What You're Not Being Told, Part 1. Today's show was recorded on the Progressive Radio Network. Hi, everyone. I'm Gary Null. This is a special broadcast, an investigative report and public hearing on vaccines for Guns and Butter, hosted by Bonnie Faulkner. Normally, this would be an hour spent on health and healing. However, Bonnie Faulkner is on the line now. She'll be conducting this special two-hour in-depth exploratory investigation. She's in the Bay Area of California. Bonnie is an independent radio journalist whose regular program, Guns and Butter, has been an inspiration to many. The program investigates the relationship between capitalism, militarism, and politics in the aftermath of 9-11, And the program is aired weekly on Pacifica stations, WBAI and KPFA in Berkeley, and and as well as on Progressive Radio Network. Her website is gunsandbutter.org. Nice to have you with us today, Bonnie. Gary, thank you so much for having me on. I want to thank you for this opportunity to do this interview with you on the important subject of vaccines. We were scheduled to do this live on KPFA in Berkeley, California, because of legislation here in California on the subject of vaccines. At the last minute, we were prevented from airing that show. Actually, we were censored. So I appreciate this opportunity to do the interview with you for PRN, and then it will go out to Pacifica and Pacifica affiliates. Thank you so much, Gary. The program forum is yours. We're going to reverse the notion of me doing the interview. You'll be conducting the interview. Gary, I want to start with an introduction of you, because this show will go out to Guns and Butter listeners. Some of them may not be as familiar with you and your work as people who listen to PRN and people on the East Coast. Of course, you've been one of the foremost advocates of alternative medicine and natural healing. You're a multi-award-winning journalist and New York Times best-selling author. You've written over 70 books, directed over 100 critically acclaimed full-featured documentary films on nutrition, self-empowerment, public health issues, and the environment. Gary, I thought you could take a few minutes here to describe your background and the work you've done, and specifically your history with the Pacifica Network. Thank you. My Tenure with uh, WBAI and Pacific began 39 years ago. I had been on the air every day, nonstop, on a Pacifica station for 39 years, making it the longest-running, uninterrupted daily program in non-commercial radio in the United States. It is also the longest-running health program in the world, um, because I was doing it several years before I was on 
WBAI had a very successful show on WMCA out of New York City. And I came to BAI because I believed in its mission. I believed in Pacifica's mission, and I still do. I have no challenge for Pacifica or WBAI because I believe that they are noble institutions with good causes, at least on paper. Uh, there have always been small cliques, a few individuals at any given time who have not always honored the legacy of Lou Hill and what Pacific is supposed to represent, but the audience certainly does, and most of the producers and hosts do. And certainly members, some members of the local station board and the national board do that honor. So knowing that I had a forum to do original investigative reporting, which is what I did, I was the first editor-in-chief of Caveat Emptor, of Consumer Beware magazine in the 1960s and 70s. And I had done a series of investigative reporting articles on the politics of cancer. In fact, these uh, later led to a special on 60 Minutes on Dr. Lawrence Burton and then one on 2020, which won two Emmys, on Dr. Slanislaw Brzezinski. And then many other programs, Gabe Pressman's program on New York Television here, uh, all based on the series. I did a total of 45 articles, cover stories, and these were all part of the Medical Genocide series. Now, it sounds harsh to label any form of an article medical genocide, but the facts are the facts. And I simply looked at what was the number one cause of death. Was it heart attacks, strokes, cancer, diabetes? And it was iatrogenesis, which is medically induced. So I'm not blaming the physicians, because I believe that they are well-intentioned and want to see people uh, helped, but I blame the system that controls the medical curriculum in schools, that controls the foundations, that controls the research grants, the state medical boards, in fact, controls the entire medical industrial complex, which, by the way, is substantially larger than the military industrial complex by a factor of at least two. So we're dealing with a $3.5 trillion a year industry. Now, some members of the medical community have believed so much in a given approach to disease that they do not change, no matter what the evidence is. And yet we should be practicing and I believe in evidence-based medicine. But then again, there is the rub. What if the evidence for the treatment of disease is that it should be least harmful, least invasive, and also engage the body's natural immune system? And for decades, that was considered immature thinking, childish, uh, because we knew, we absolutely knew that if women were given synthetic hormone replacement therapy for hot flashes and osteoporosis, it would prevent both and protect their heart. The trouble is that was a lie. And for over 38 years, women, at least 13% minimum, have been affected by heart attack, stroke, breast cancer, ovarian cancer, dementia, and colorectal cancer. And that's the national government's own own findings of the dangers and side effects or the actual effects of hormone, synthetic hormone replacement therapy. So it didn't change. Today, as many doctors are using synthetic hormone replacement therapy, like Primarin, as were done at the beginning. So the fact that we show that something is wrong and shouldn't be used doesn't mean that there is a, an immediate shift in consciousness and caution protect the consumer. It generally takes over 30 years 
once a medical procedure has been found to be both ineffective and dangerous for it to be replaced. So the chemotherapies that are used today, the March for the Cure, these have more to do with public relations controlled by the pharmaceutical industry's public relations firms to keep everyone believing that the only truth about cancer is official truth. The only truth about vaccines is official vaccine truth. So when people are asked to go forward on the public forums, ABC, NBC, CBS, Fox, and tell us the truth about what we should eat, what we should drink, the dangers of different substances in the environment, global warming, uh, the war on terror, the war on drugs, no matter what the topic, there's always a very small hand-picked group of highly qualified, well-credentialed, generally very articulate individuals who go forward and, and make an argument. Anyone else that comes forward is considered a loon, a quack, uh, pseudoscientific, and even how they place the people by their describing them in the beginning of interviews will taint the interview, but this doesn't seem to matter because they virtually control all the media. When I say all the media, I'm also referring to Pacifica, MSNBC, Fox News, uh, the National Geographic, um, I've seen articles across the spectrum in Mother Jones, in The Nation magazine, supporting vaccines and actually condemning people who would challenge vaccines. So my background is as an investigative journalist, reporting and breaking over 300 stories. Now, my publisher was very concerned. He didn't want to get hit with lawsuits. And it was an interesting first meeting because... Mother Jones wouldn't publish my article on the politics of cancer, even though it was fully vetted, uh, nor would Harper, nor would Atlantic. So the so-called liberal publications didn't touch it. But one person at least was honest with me. She was at Mother Jones, and her, her grandfather was actually one of the doctors I was writing about, who had been um, cassiated, I should say, and had been completely persona non grata within the cancer community, yet he was curing more people with terminal cancer than anyone else in the United States, Dr. Emanuel Vici. In any case, I said, why won't you publish this article showing how they've gone after the good doctors using alternative therapies? She said, we don't want to lose the advertising. You, you can't go up against a cancer establishment. They're just too powerful. They have, they have too much control over too many different institutions and agencies. She said, we don't want to touch it. So, okay, so uh, our town newspaper published it. It won uh, the Audie Award for Investigative Journalism. And then I was invited by a person who read it uh, to meet a major publisher. And at this publishing meeting, here's what went on. Twenty-two people were sitting around this gigantic conference table, the advertising marketing director, the editor-in-chief, and they all said when asked their opinion, should they publish this article on the politics of cancer, they all said no. We'll lose $7 million in advertising if we do. We'll get hit with lawsuits. And this publisher leaned over to me in a very quiet voice. He said, do you really, really believe that if we publish an article, we'll save some lives? And I said, sir, we will save a lot of lives if people know that there's another approach. I'm not telling them not to use chemotherapy, radiation, and surgery. That's their right. I believe in freedom of choice. I'm merely explaining that there are other therapies that are natural, non-toxic by a number of physicians. I visited their clinics. I've reviewed the patient records. I've interviewed the patients. I spent three years doing this. And he said, then we're going to publish it. And then this big lawyer who was there uh, said, um, there's too much danger. And so the publisher said, then hire the best 
smartest lawyer in America to vet every single one of them. So this person was hired that every article I wrote for 25 years had to be vetted every sentence, and I never had a lawsuit, nor did the publisher, never had to retract a sentence. And so the qualification of the information I share to this day, every single article I write, every documentary I produce, every program on PBS stations is all vetted. And the information even on my radio show, when I, I read an article, for example, if I were to talk about, you know, um, a vitamin A being beneficial, I would cite, as my audience fully knows, the peer-reviewed journal it was published in, the institution it was done at, to show that mainstream science is the biggest supporter of alternative or complementary lifestyles and healing. It just never gets into the uh, national dialogue, and hence the science is there to support it, independent science, but we're just not reading the independent science. So I've done... 700 articles, over 300 original investigative reports, and over 34 articles on vaccines. All the vaccines articles I've written are fully vetted, completely referenced, all scientifically accurate, and the three multi-award winning documentaries, Vaccine Nation, Autism Made in the USA, and The Silent Epidemic, have all been vetted, and they have not had to be uh, redone because of inaccuracy. So someone can say they don't like what I do, and that's fine, but someone cannot say that it is inaccurate or does not hold uh, scientific merit because I'm using only mainstream sciences, statistics, and figures. And by the way, my article, Death by Medicine, which was done with five medical doctors and PhDs, all academics, all board certified, uh, took us five years to do, proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that the number one cause of death and injury in the United States is iatrogenesis. And the most conservative figure was around 580,000. The most likely figure was closer to 800,000 deaths per year. That, and if you go back 20 years, you're, you're dealing with more than 10 million Americans died who didn't have to, preventable deaths. And that's why I called it medical genocide. Because when you kill 10 million people that don't need to die, not a single person is held accountable, not a single committee hearing or a discussion of how you can change that which is not working right, then something is terribly flawed with the paradigm itself. Gary, I want to thank you very much for your incredible work over these years. You were really there before anyone. I did want to mention to you that I was having dinner with a good friend of mine just a few nights ago, and he told me that you saved his life. I, I think it had to do with the Gerson therapy. That's my guess. Because this program is going out to Guns and Butter listeners, and I'm here in California, we're going to cover a broad range of the vaccine issue. I want to begin today by giving an update on the vaccine legislation that is currently moving through the California State Senate. Senate Bill 277 would remove a broad personal belief and religious exemption from vaccination schedules required for children to attend public and private school. This bill has prompted many parents to threaten to pull their children from school. The bill had faltered under questions about whether unvaccinated and selectively vaccinated children could still exercise their constitutional right to an education. 
In the meantime, the bill's sponsors crafted amendments to placate skeptics. The changes expand the homeschooling and independent study options available to children who are not vaccinated and therefore could not attend conventional public or private schools. Essentially, what they're saying is, well, okay, you don't have to vaccinate your kids. You can just run a schoolhouse in your living room. Senate Bill 277 by Senators Bill Allen, Democrat Santa Monica, and Richard Pan, Democrat Sacramento, has been approved by the Health Committee, the Education Committee, the Judiciary Committee, and has now been able to bypass the Appropriations Committee because a clause requiring funding has been removed. SB 277 will now go to a vote of the full Senate. There's now talk about grandfathering in students who are already enrolled in school in order to quell the demonstrations in Sacramento. Gary, I thought we might break this down into four distinct components and spend some time on each of them. They are vaccine effectiveness, vaccine safety, legal issues, and finally the role of the pharmaceutical industry, government officials, politicians, and the media. Your documentary, Silent Epidemic, The Untold Story of Vaccines, addresses the first two, effectiveness and safety. It asks two simple questions. Are vaccines effective and are they safe? With regard to effectiveness, what is the difference, for instance, between the immunity that I have as a result of having had measles as a child and the effects of a measles vaccine on someone who has never had the sickness? Is there a difference? And if so, what is it? Okay, I'm going to tie in several of your comments into my answer. Um, And I'm going to begin by citing one of the people uh, who is considered probably the finest, most knowledgeable vaccine toxicologist expert in the world. Uh, She is Dr. Tatyana Obukanich. And uh, she is a graduate of Harvard in immunology and Stanford University. And uh, here's what she has to say in her own words, because it addresses several of your points. This is an open letter to the legislators currently considering the vaccine legislation in California. So it ties in with what you're discussing. And it comes through a group called Thinking Moms Revolution. So, quote, My name is uh, Tatyana Obukanovich. I hold a PhD in immunology. I'm writing this letter in the hope that it will correct several common misrepresentations and perceptions about vaccines in order to help you formulate a fair and balanced understanding that is supported by accepted vaccine theory and new scientific findings. First, do unvaccinated children pose a higher risk and threat to the public than the vaccinated? It is often stated that those who choose not to vaccinate their children for reasons of conscience endanger the rest of the public. And this is the rationale behind most of the legislation to end vaccine exemptions currently being considered by federal and state legislators countrywide. You should be aware that the nature of protection afforded by many modern-day vaccines, and that includes most of the vaccines recommended by the CDC for children, is not consistent with this statement. I have outlined the recommended vaccines that cannot prevent transmission of disease, either because they are not designed to prevent the transmission of infection or because they are not for non-communicable diseases. People who have not received the vaccines uh, pose no higher threat to the general public 
than those who have, implying that discrimination against non-immunized children in a public school setting may not be warranted. And then she goes into these, including the inactivated polio vaccine, cannot uh, prevent transmission of poliovirus. She goes into tetanus, it's not a contagious disease. Uh, she goes into the hepatitis B, pertussis, and, and amongst her statements, Bonnie, is that she's talking about how these are not infectious diseases. Quote, how do serious vaccine adverse events happen? And then she goes into the toxicology. She says, a recent study done in Ontario, Canada, established that vaccination actually leads to an emergency room visit for one in 168 children following their 12-month vaccination appointment and one in 730 children following their 18-month vaccination appointment. When the risk of an adverse event requiring an emergency room visit after well-baby vaccinations is demonstrably so high, vaccination must remain a choice for parents who may understandably be unwilling to assume this immediate risk in order to protect their children from diseases that are generally considered mild or that their children may never be exposed to? Can discrimination against families who oppose vaccine for reasons of conscience prevent future disease outbreaks of communicable viral diseases such as measles? Measles research scientists have long uh, been aware of the measles paradox. I quote from an article by Poland and Johnson, failure to reach the goal of measles elimination, and quote the apparent paradoxes that as measles immunization rates rise to high levels in a population, measles becomes a disease of immunized persons. Bonnie, what that's saying is that the people most likely to get measles are the people who've gotten a full set of measles vaccines. And this is true of other conditions as well. Further research, quote, determined that behind the measles paradox is a fraction of the population called low vaccine responders. Low vaccine responders are those who respond poorly to the first dose of measles vaccines. And these individuals then mount a weak immune response to subsequent uh, revaccination and quickly return to the pool of susceptibles. Then it goes on to talk about uh, what she talks about is taken together, quote, these data make it apparent that elimination of vaccine exemptions currently only utilized by a small percentage of families anyway will neither solve the problem of disease resurgence or prevent reimportation and outbreaks of previously eliminated disease. And then she says that it's wrong to it's wrong to prosecute in the public arena people who choose not to vaccinate. And then she lists all the science, all the uh, actual studies showing this. So what is the takeaway message from her to the state legislatures? That the science of vaccination must also include the science of immunology and the science of toxicology. So if you were to ask a group of regular doctors and pediatricians are vaccines safe and effective? They're going to say, yes. Pharmacists, nurses, yes. Uh, your state legislators, sure. And everyone working at the CDC, the FDA, U.S. Public Health Service, National Institutes of Allergy and Infectious Disease, of course they are. Okay, where's your evidence? What do you mean? We have thousands of studies. All right. I've read every single study you have, as have many other people. And we don't find where you've done a double-blind, randomized, controlled study. You haven't taken 1,000 kids who've been fully vaccinated, 1,000 kids who've had no vaccines, and followed them on a quarterly basis doing blood workups and, and uh, health diaries to see what conditions they contract, how long they have it, the severity of them, 
uh, if there's any mortality or hospitalization. You've done nothing like this. In fact, the only group that you could begin to compare who are unvaccinated to those who are vaccinated who have no autism whatsoever are the Amish. The Amish do not vaccinate. So when one wise guy said, well, yeah, no, there were six cases of autism in the autism community, he was correct. Those were adopted children. They were not born Amish, and hence they had been vaccinated before they were adopted. But of the actual natural children born of Amish, no, they don't have autism. So then that raises a paradox. So then we start looking, and I go back to do my film. I wanted to see what does the actual science show, and I find for the last 30 years the people most likely to come down with measles and more severe type are those who have been fully vaccinated, whooping cough, fully vaccinated. So if we have people coming down with the diseases and they've been fully vaccinated, then that's showing that the antibody that is created in, in the person's body when they get the immunization or the vaccination is not creating a protective antibody. But we were led to believe that any antibody is protective. That is not true. And uh, so we have people who have a lot of antibodies who get the disease and people who have no antibodies who don't get it. But they haven't had the science. And the science they have had that they use is almost all supported by special interest groups, meaning the vaccine manufacturers. And they control everything. And you never know about the wrong studies. I'm speaking with investigative journalist, filmmaker, and radio host Gary Knoll. Today's show, Vaccines, What You're Not Being Told, Part 1. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Now, concerning the measles outbreak, where all this started, first Disneyland was a small uh, group of people compared to the last outbreak, such as the one in Ohio that resulted in almost 300 infections. And overall, there were 644 cases, not including Disneyland. The mention in the media was zero. What is important is that all these bills appearing in all states are modeled after each other. They appeared as if all at once following the Disneyland outbreak. That means they had been worked on, pre-drafted, and were merely waiting for an outbreak that could be classified by federal health officials as an epidemic. So this was an organized effort to get mandated vaccines so you couldn't have an exemption. Now, it's pretty well confirmed that patient zero from the Disneyland outbreak, meaning the first person to have the infection, uh, was a vaccinated child. Uh, and again, we don't have absolute proof of that. But look at all the people who got measles from Disneyland who had been fully vaccinated. And then those who, who were exposed and didn't come down with it. And so... You have areas in the United States where you have 100% compliance with the MMR vaccine, yet you have outbreaks occurring among the fully vaccinated population. So their science is flawed, and the toxicologists will show you this. But then something that's outrageous, you have people coming around who say, well, you could get 10,000 vaccines at one time or 100,000 total, and it wouldn't be a problem. And that was actually published in The Lancet uh, by Dr. Paul Offit, and it's far safer than the multivitamins. Really? Okay, let's just do our homework. So, there have been now 60 billion doses of multiple vitamins from a 2012 report in orthomolecular medicine. Over half of Americans take supplements. If each of those took only one a day, that would be over 60 billion annually. 
Now, compare that to pharmaceutical drugs. According to the American Association of Poison Control Centers National Poison Data System, there was zero, let's emphasize that, not a single death reported from nutritional supplements based on the most current data available. And that was based upon tracking 57 separate poison control centers in the United States. According to the Poison Control Center, among fatal poisonings, 85% were from pharmaceutical drugs. So the people who are making the vaccines, the pharmaceutical industry, are responsible for killing hundreds of thousands of people a year with their drugs. But is there any effort to mandate any change? No. The people are giving us vitamin supplements, which are safe, and no one's died. Well, they're the ones now under attack. So the people that are not only attacking for not using vaccines, they're also attacking the same people who are possibly using uh, vitamins to get their natural immunity. Now, you asked a question earlier about immunity and uh, what is the difference. I just want to tell you a little bit about this so that we can put this in proper perspective. Where are the real infectious outbreaks? Well, forget Disneyland, hospital and doctor's offices. Here are the latest actual science. In California, 430 acute care hospitals. You had 240,000 infections, 13,500 deaths, and it cost $3.1 billion. How did all that happen? Doctors' offices. According to the CDC, as published in New England Journal of Medicine, among 150,000 infected with a clostridium microorganism, 82% had visited a doctor's office just before their symptoms. So perhaps a vaccine should be created to protect people's immune systems from visiting doctor's offices and the hospital clinics, because that's where people are getting infected. And yet this is completely out of the discussion in California. So if you want to stop infections in California, it's not Disneyland you've got a problem with. It's your doctor's offices and hospitals. You've got your actual 13,500 people of dying in, of infections at a cost of $3 million, 240,000 infections at 430 acute care hospitals. I don't hear anybody wanting to legislate that. Now, let's take a look at the larger issue you ask. Vaccines only provide plastic immunity. And plastic immunity means that there's no way of determining, Bonnie, how long a person who is immunized will have any form of protection and what percentage protection it will be. Because in vaccine world, it's all the same. If you were a 300-pound person or an 8-pound baby, everybody gets the same size vaccine. That goes against everything we know about cellular biology. Now, what happens is that they build up only one line of our immune system. Let's just argue on their behalf and say vaccines work. But for how long? It's all based on the antibody system. But the consequence is that vaccines put the main immune system, what we call cellular immunity, to sleep. But we need both immune systems to develop full maturity of the immune system. And this is why we are discovering repeatedly over the world that the highest rates of infections are almost always among the vaccinated. Now, there's a province in China with 99% measles vaccination compliance, and yet it is repeatedly the area of China with the highest rate of measles infections. 
Now, you will frequently read on vaccine insert packages that it contains a, what is called a recombinant ingredient. Now, that is what is used to grow the virus. For example, rubella is grown on recombinant human albumin. Um, but what's that mean? In lay language, recombinant DNA is DNA molecules created in a laboratory in order to bring together genetic material from multiple sources. Thus, it creates a genetic signature that is not found in nature, and that's called GMO, genetically modified organism. And it is, it is dangerous, yes. In fact, in 2009, during the swine flu vaccine rush, the Germany's most popular magazine, Der Spiegel, reported that the German politicians received a vaccine from Baxter that was not recombinated, while the rest of the German population received one that was. Of course, Merkel's government denied this, but we have evidence to the contrary. So the question is, are the elites getting a non-recombinant DNA vaccine where the general population is, well, they get the vaccine. Now, they always use polio and smallpox uh, victories as why we should vaccinate. How many millions of people would have died if we didn't have these? The trouble is they don't know their science or history or both. Polio and then smallpox is, is always right at the front of the moniker of the pro-vaccine community and proving that it's effective in eradicating disease. The problem is they can't prove it. And it begins with a very faulty, misinformed assumption that vaccination is one-size-fits-all portion. It ignores that every infectious disease and its respective vaccines need to be discerned on their own merits and effectiveness. Every infectious virus has its own peculiarities, meaning means how it's transmitted, and the biomolecular mechanisms in which they infect a cell and how each impacts the immune system. And that is why no two vaccines are identical. So each needs to be taken on its own terms. And to speak of vaccines in a universal manner, as we hear repeatedly by the CDC and Bill Gates and Paul Offit and others, is scientifically implausible and really quackery. And because of that, this issue of herd immunity is also scientifically nonsensical when it is applied to all viruses and vaccines. And several years ago, the CDC, after 60 years of silence, finally came out admitting that the polio vaccine that they brag about, given to over 1.2 million Americans, some have it much higher than that. That's all they admit to. Between 1955 and 1963 was contaminated with a carcinogenic monkey virus known as SV40, simian virus 40. This virus has now been attributed to incurable cancers such as brain tumors, mesotheliomas, and osteosarcomas. And yet they knew it all along. They knew they had contaminated polio vaccines. They knew that there was not a single, single polio vaccine in America that was not contaminated. Now, who said this? The man who invented more vaccines than anyone else in American history. Maurice Hilleman. He was at Merck. And he was the king of vaccines. Near his death, he allowed for an interview. And maybe it was his mea culpa. But during this final interview, filmed interview, he acknowledged that he found the SV40 virus. And when they injected it into hamsters, they all got cancer. He told this to Sabin. And Sabin freaked out, he said. And they decided just to keep it quiet. So from the pillars 
the establishment, ground zero of the entire vaccine safety community. It was all a lie. Everything was a lie. All vaccines have contaminants. In fact, these contaminants were only discovered after Freedom of Information Act request of people who had no risk factors, came down with unusual cancers, and they started finding the SC40 genes and proteins in their body. In fact, one study estimates 25% of the entire American public right now carries the SV40 virus. Another study found 60% of cancer patients tested had SV40 genes and proteins. This is all from one vaccine that is now held as, as the pro-vaccine industry's greatest success. Great success? You contaminate an entire nation, you lie about it, you cover it up, and we're supposed to assume that that is a good thing? So today, SV40 is no longer in the dead polio vaccines given to Americans, but it's still given to people in the developing world because it's cheaper to make. But another problem arises, and this is equally true of the smallpox vaccines as held as a vaccine miracle. Polio virus for vaccines is grown on animal tissue medium, which can include monkey kidney cells, newborn calf serum, bovine extract, and, and more recently, even medium containing a tetani, a cause of ages in tetanus, and fertilized chicken eggs, and used primarily in MMR and flu vaccines, are notorious for containing foreign viruses. And the CDC's head of DNA Virus Laboratory stated in a closed meeting, quote, that all egg-based vaccines are contaminated, end quote. Now, all these animal tissue mediums can carry known and unknown pathogenic viruses and bacteria. And transcripts from CDC meetings show conclusively that vaccine makers know that they have no way to prevent dangerous carcinogenic and autoimmune causing genetic material from being in the vaccine liquid that is injected into your child, your infant. And among the unwanted genetic material found in some vaccines are oncogenes, bird leukemia viruses, horse arthritic causing virus, foamy virus, Prions, a protein form that causes mad cow disease and other life-threatening illnesses. The presence of enzyme reverse transcriptase, which can result in an HIV test turning out positive. They are even uncertain based on the CDC docs with HIV. Is this a vaccine or not? All kinds of extraneous DNA fragments are also in there. Now, polio vaccines have been licensed to use as a cancer cell line that can carry a risk of cancer-causing oncogenes. And the CDC acknowledges that it is impossible to remove all the foreign genetic material, and the CDC gives vaccine companies an allowance for how much genetic contamination is permitted in a vaccine. And they keep increasing that amount. Well, did you know, Bonnie, that when you get an injection or a kid gets 20 injections, that every one of those injections is contaminated, but they're allowed to have this contaminant? They don't tell us that there's contaminants in there. And this is true for every vaccine grown on animal tissue medium, such as measles, mumps, flu, and chickenpox vaccines. So then how can they say that these are safe when they've never done the studies? And even if, even if we make the wild assumption, the polio vaccine eradicated polio from the United States, what has been the trade-off? Unfortunately, the CDC and the vaccine companies don't want to know the answer to that question. Now, I want to mention the smallpox vaccine because today the smallpox vaccine is not administered in the United States. The debate whether the vaccine contributed to the decline of smallpox infection is going to go on. 
and I've looked at the information in depth. And Roman Bastrinic and Dr. Susanna Humphreys took years and thousands of hours to create charts based upon public health, uh, actual countries' health statistics, and it showed that the most vaccinated time in smallpox history had the highest incidence of smallpox. And, and when they started to clean up the towns, they started to see that there was a gross decrease. Now, two examples. In the Philippines, where they had a rise in smallpox infection to 110,000 infections and 61,000 deaths, it was right after they had a mass vaccination for smallpox. And smallpox was also regarded as a disease most frequently found among the poor communities with poor sanitation. So here's the best case that you won't have heard of. It's Leicester, England. They decided instead of vaccinating, the town would make a massive cleanup and create new sanitation, cleaner water and clean up the roads and, and not allow people to be uh, buried by throwing them in the, um, in the river and all the other things where people drew their water from. The result that with smallpox did not affect the town as it was ravaging everywhere else in the United Kingdom that was getting the vaccines but not cleaning up the mess. And you've got to understand that back in, in that time when the smallpox was happening, they'll brag about Dr. Jenner, uh, inventor of the smallpox vaccine, which was actually not smallpox, it was cowpox. And, and did they tell you that his son died? No. Did they tell you that the young boy that he tested on that was heralded as this cure, that he died? No. Uh, did they tell you that there were doctors at the time writing in the medical publications that they had seen many milkmaids who had cowpox, the blue and, and purplish um, uh, markings on their hands, who then went on to contract smallpox and died? No. So it was a complete myth. And by the way, he never earned a medical degree. He bought it. He had a, he had a sponsor, and the sponsor he had was able to fund his work and see that his was dominant. But there were a lot of doctors at the time showing that what he was doing was not, not accurate. Now, let's go to the one that they herald today is the measles vaccine. Look at the charts. The highest death rate from measles was when they had no vaccine. And then when they started to clean up things such as when you got rid of child labor and you put laws, because kids would go to work in terrible environments, work 12-hour days, six days a week for pennies a day, and they lived in um, overcrowded environments without good sanitation or any sanitation. And a lot of migrants coming over would live 10 or 15 people to a basement uh, where there was no running water nor any sanitation, and then they would get sick, and they would spread infections around them because they all had compromised immune systems. But when we started to pasteurize milk, when we started to clean up the water and disinfect the water, when we began to bring in more fruits and vegetables, when, when we began to put in septic systems or clean water into the cities, our cleanliness, our hygiene, washing hands, using soap, um, getting rid of uh, child labor, these are the measures that began to make an enormous difference in public health. And yet, measles was 98% gone before the vaccine was even introduced. So how could they give the, the credit to the vaccine when the vaccine uh, came after the epidemic? 
And in fact, there's a study now in the Journal of the American Medical Association that shows that only 14% of those infected with measles at Disneyland's were not vaccinated. That means that you had over 86% of the people vaccinated. Well, if 86% of the people contracting measles at Disneyland were vaccinated, then your herd immunity is a fantasy. And the Journal of Biomedical Science study analyzed the effects of the MMR vaccine on the nervous system and found that the MMR, the measles, mumps, rubella vaccinated children with autism had a type of antibody that was triggering an abnormal autoimmune response that damages the brain's myelin sheath. And kids often get a fever after a vaccine and parents are quick to give children Tylenol to reduce it. In a study at the University of California at San Diego, it was found that there was a correlation between children receiving the MMR vaccine and were given Tylenol uh, with a higher rate of autism. And I could go through pertussis, a recent pertussis outbreak this year in Park City, Utah. The bad news is every child who contracted it was fully vaccinated, 100% vaccinated, yet they got the whooping cough. In California last year, in a large pertussis outbreak, only 8% were not vaccinated. That means that 91% were fully vaccinated. Well, where's your herd immunity? It's a myth. And, uh, and hepatitis B. No, no baby should get a hepatitis B vaccine unless the mother's been proven to have hepatitis, and then you can check to see if the baby does. Otherwise, you're giving it right at birth with a non-developed immune system. You're giving one of the most toxic vaccines imaginable. In fact, the New Zealand Medical Journal, a Dr. Bart Clayson, a former researcher at the National Institutes of Health, reported a 60% increase in type 1 diabetes following a massive campaign in New Zealand from 1988 to 1991 to vaccinate babies six weeks of age or older with hepatitis B vaccine. Now, his analysis of a group of 100,000 New Zealand children showed that the incidence of diabetes among the hepatitis B vaccinated program was 11 cases per 100,000 per children, while the incidence of diabetes among the hepatitis B was 18.2 cases, a substantial increase. So you want to prevent diabetes type 1 in your children, forego the hepatitis B vaccine. And by the way, when you hear them talking about there's no association between vaccines and autism, yeah, yeah, there is. It's substantial. And the best example uh, is Dr. Paul Thomas, a pediatrician, board certified, who testified in the Oregon State Assembly against a bill similar to what you have in California, Bonnie. Uh, and he has a pedigree degree. You know, he's Dartmouth Medical School, Pediatric Residency, University of California, Fellow of the American Academy of Pediatrics, and a former professor of pediatrics. He testified that over a 1,000 kids under three years of age in his practice, not a single case of autism because they weren't vaccinated. And so when others state that all oh, vaccines don't cause autism, okay. Uh, and they list some 14 studies that exist proving no connection. I've looked carefully at every one of those 14 studies. Not a single one has convincing data to draw such a conclusion. In fact, one of those 14 studies doesn't even address autism. Another by Dr. William Thompson, the recent whistleblower at the CDC, has gone public with proof that the CDC has consistently covered up and manipulated research data to hide vaccines as a causal contributor to neurological damage in autism. And another one of the 14 was co-authored by Paul Thornson, and now on the FBI Most Wanted list for embezzling millions of dollars from the CDC, 
for conducting phony studies on vaccine mercury and autism. Now, if you read some of these studies carefully, they are actually quite laughable, and one wonders how on earth any of these researchers managed to get through high school, let alone graduate school. Uh, researchers at University of Northern Iowa evaluated dozens of studies that attempted to debunk the association between autism and heavy metals used in vaccines like mercury and aluminum. But many of these uh, studies used erroneous statistics and faulty methods to come to their conclusions. So is it just scientific stupidity or is it intentional? And also um, keep in mind that an investigation was conducted by Pace University Law School and found that the government's vaccine injury compensation program was secretly compensating 83 families for vaccine-induced encephalopathic conditions or seizures related to autism. In 21 of these cases, the word autism, Bonnie, was used in the court documents. So on the one hand, those of us who actually do the real research, independent research, the evidence shows that the federal government is giving hundreds of millions of dollars in compensation to 83 families where they had vaccine-induced seizures related to autism, use autism in the actual signing statements, and yet you'll have people saying, oh, there's no association of autism and, and vaccines. So this is the game of politics. And finally, to answer the last extension of what you said, all you have to do is look at the Journal of Toxicology, the Department of Neurosurgery, Methodist Hospital, Houston, an article written titled Thimerosal-Derived Ethylmercury in is a Mitochondrial Toxin in Human Astrocytes, Possible Role in Fending Chemistry and the Oxidation Breakdown of DNA. In lay language, thimerosal, mercury, that's used in your flu vaccines, it was used historically in almost all these vaccines, and as even as part per billion in most vaccines today, it destroys the mitochondria in the brain and in the gut, and that can lead to problems. That's one. A separate study, uh, I have four out of dozens, uh, show that mercury, 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 and mercury all impact uh, the brain. And then the person who appeared on a Pacifica station, and I was surprised that there was no one chose to look at the man's background. Paul Offit, you see him everywhere. He's ubiquitous. He's articulate. Uh, he's certainly intelligent, and he's well-credentialed. Good for him. But when he becomes the number one advocate, at least to my knowledge, of the pro-vaccine, why didn't anyone look in his own vaccine background? He has the rotavirus vaccine and uh, with Merck manufacturing called uh, Rotatech. Ovid's Rotatech vaccine is now under review by French health authorities for causing the deaths of two infants. And rotaviruses, in almost all cases, only cause diarrhea, albeit sometimes serious. However, the CDC's VARS database lists 305 deaths from Ovid's Rotatech and 108 deaths from his competing rotavirus a uh, vaccine called Rotorix, and it's being pushed heavily in children in countries like India, Malawi, Ghana, Kenya, Bangladesh, and Vietnam. And even the best science I could find shows the vaccine's efficacy is only 50% or less. So if, if you have invented something or there's a vaccine out there that's 
been shown to kill 305 people, how does that person not get challenged on that? And then you get the worst of the worst. In California, Bonnie, the big problem is going to come with the Gardasil vaccine. I've never seen such a terrible vaccine. No parent should ever offer up their children to that vaccine until they've done their homework. Now, the human papillomavirus vaccine accounts for 60% of all reported vaccine injuries and 64% of vaccine-related deaths. That's according to the VARS database. And, uh, and yet the CDC says only a maximum of 10% of vaccine injuries get reported. So whatever you hear about, just amplify those numbers up. For example, uh, in 2014, a former pharmaceutical physician employed with Merck, the makers of the vaccine, Dr. Bernard Dalberg, whistleblower in France, that the vaccine was useless, way overpriced, and will go down in history as, quote, one of the greatest medical scandals of all time. In an interview with the major French magazine, he said, quote, the evidence will add up to prove that this vaccine has absolutely no effect on cervical cancer and that all the many adverse effects will destroy lives, even kill, and serve no purpose than to generate a profit for the manufacturers, end quote. Now, Gardasil injuries account for among the most moneyed awarded victims in the vaccine injury compensation program. And yet, yet we know for a fact that the pap smear reduces cervical cancer risk by 80% and about 90% for human papillomavirus infections resolve themselves naturally within two to three years. Fact, there is no national human papillomavirus health crisis and no convincing studies yet to prove that Gardasil prevents cervical cancer. None. Zero. And only on the market less than 10 years, it first claimed to be 98% effective in 2007. Then it was lowered to 70% effective. And after a later study, its effectiveness was lowered again to 44%. And then another study by Merck looked at Gardasil's ability to prevent all cervical cancers, lesions. It was only 17% effective. And even worse, Merck itself had to acknowledge that during the controlled studies testing the vaccine, a significant percentage of the girls developed cervical lesions after being vaccinated. How in the world do you give a young, healthy girl with no cervical lesions a vaccine, and then they develop cervical lesions? And what few people know is that Judicial Watch filed a Freedom of Information Act request to get more details on Merck's clinical trials when testing Gardasil. And what did they discover? Three girls died during the trial, all from heart problems and one from rapid blood clot only three hours after receiving the vaccine. Why didn't the American media know that? Why don't any of the physicians or the legislators in California know this information? Why doesn't Governor Brown, who will sign this into law in a heartbeat, why doesn't he know it? Why isn't anyone in California who's in a responsible position to the public doing any homework? What the hell is wrong with the people of California in positions of authority and responsibility? You can do homework. You can do research. You're fully capable of it. If I can find all this information out about the Gardasil vaccine and the most likely vaccine that you're going to all end up having to take, and in Australia found that there was an increase in congenital abnormalities in infants whose mothers received the human papilloma vaccines, and other studies found higher rates of fetal deaths, central nervous system malformations, neurotube defects when pregnant women were vaccinated with Gardasil. 
And two studies, an Italian study found that 61% of women experienced adverse events after the administration of the first dose of the human papillomavirus. And that was published in the Progressive Medicine, May 31st, 2013, from the National Center for Epidemiology in Rome, a human study, and another study on the human papillomavirus vaccine associated with demyelinating events that was published um, through St. Vincent's Hospital. It was an article, and it talked about, well, you know, when you demyelinate, you could end up with multiple sclerosis. So that's right. what we're dealing with. Well, Gary, I'm sure you're outraged at these legislators, particularly in the California legislature. Like you said, why can't they do their homework? I've been speaking with Dr. Gary Null. Today's show has been Vaccines, What You're Not Being Told, Part 1. Gary Null has been one of the foremost advocates of alternative medicine and natural healing. A multi-award-winning journalist and New York Times best-selling author, Dr. Null has written over 70 books and is a director of over 100 critically acclaimed full-feature documentary films on nutrition, self-empowerment, public health issues, and the environment. Currently, The Gary Null Show can be heard on the Progressive Radio Network from 12 to 1 p.m. Eastern. He has been a long-standing programmer on Pacifica's WBAI in New York. Visit GaryNull.com, that's G-A-R-Y-N-U-L-L dot C-O-M, and ProgressiveRadioNetwork.com. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner, Tony Rango, and Yara Mako. To leave comments or order copies of shows, email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.org. That's F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R at G-U-N-S-A-N-D-B-U-T-T-E-R dot O-R-G. Visit our website at gunsandbutter.org to sign up for our email list. Follow us at G&B Radio. Hey, yo, these are some serious times that we live in, G. And our new world order is about to begin. You know what I'm saying? Now the question is, are you ready for the real revolution, which is the evolution of the mind? If you seek, then you shall find that we all come from the divine. You dig what I'm saying? Now if you take heed to the words of wisdom that are written on the walls of life, then universally we will stand and divided we will fall because love conquers all. You understand what I'm saying? This is a call for all you sleeping souls. Wake up and take control of your own cipher and be on the lookout for the spirit snipers.